1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 28. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and the soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. One of my favorite books uh, is a book entitled The Bruised Reed. Uh, It's by a a Puritan by the name of Richard Sibbs. And the book was actually written in 1630. And it's particularly helpful uh, with those who are struggling with spiritual depression or struggling with the idea that God is far off, that he is in fact not near to us. And when we are in that position, uh, we oftentimes wonder, God, are you for me? God, are you doing anything in me? God, are you working in and around me? Uh, and in, in that instance, this book has been a great help to, help to me. Uh, one of my friends from seminary, he wrote a review for a, a Christian website on the book, The Bruised Reader. He's actually the one who introduced me to the book. And he wrote, Sibs knows how easy it is for the believing heart to turn in on itself and become blinded to the flicker of grace Christ has placed there. He recognizes too e- that we're too easily fooled into thinking Jesus would rather take a sickle to a bruised reed than carefully attend to its restoration. It's true, and what Derek was alluding to by writing that in, in his review is that we often think Jesus stands ready to cut us off at any misstep that we make in our lives. The slightest error that we commit, Jesus stands ready to just do away with us. But this is not, in fact, the character of Christ, as is shown to us in the pages of Scripture. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Jesus, in fact, with sinners, those who, are, who stand in a position where we still inhabit sinful flesh, Jesus is patient, he is kind with us, and he bears gently and decidedly with sinners. And we sometimes see the way that Jesus addresses his disciples and the crowds in the Gospels, and we think to ourselves, this is really hard stuff that Jesus is saying here. It's hard stuff to hear. And of course, it is, it is difficult to hear in some instances. But we must know that what Jesus is communicating in those instances isn't flowing from a heart of frustration, isn't flowing from a heart of impatience. It's not from a position of frustration or impatience that Jesus says hard things to those who are following him. We must know that it is instead a careful, surgical approach to our hard-heartedness. And the Word of God made flesh in the person of Jesus Christ does not wield a machete, he wields a scalpel. He came to cut out sin precisely. And none of what is cut out cannot be restored. In fact, everything that is cut out, in fact, will be healed. Jesus isn't hacking his way through the jungle with a machete, making us feel bad for the way that we've acted. 
Rather, he's administering the most meticulous and surgical care, dealing patiently, gently, and decidedly with us. All that he wounds will be brought to full and perfect health. If you've ever planted a tree, and it's a small tree, you know that it requires a significant amount of attention early in the process. In order to get the tree, to bring the tree to maturity and full health, uh, there is a lot of attention to detail that is needed. Time and attention that brings the tree to maturity, and it is the grace of God under an attentive eye in his timing that brings us to maturity in Christ. But the beginnings are often small, and the process can be treacherous. And at times the difficulty brought about by our own sin or a world of sin can lead to feelings of frustration on our part. This beginning is small. Why am I still struggling with the same things that I've been struggling with for many, many years? Why does it seem like God has forgotten me? Has Christ cut me off because of my continual missteps? And the answer is no, not even in the slightest. To that thought, Richard Sibbs in The Bruised Reed writes, In case of discouragement, we must consider ourselves as Christ does, who looks, at us, or looks on us as those he intends to fit for himself. Christ values us by what we shall be and what we are elected unto. We call a little plant a tree because it is growing up to be so. Christ would have not have us despise little things. Christ would not have us despise little things. And every time I read this book, I'm struck by that phrase. We call a little plant a tree because it is growing up to be so. A little plant that you can put in your hand, a sapling, does not seem very tree-like. But one day, under a watchful eye and close care and attention to detail, it will, in fact, become a tree. A life of everyday faithfulness, like the one Paul outlines for the the Thessalonian church, starts with small beginnings and grows into a life of fruitfulness. But it is the peace, it is the God of peace who starts the work and who finishes the work. He begins the work, and he ends the work. And he calls you a tree, even when you're a small plant or a sapling, because he intends to make you an oak of righteousness. And so, when Paul gets the end of this letter, the very last verses of this letter, he recognizes that it is God who begins and finishes the work in the Thessalonians, and who begins and ends the work in us. And so Paul closes his letter to the Thessalonians with prayer. If you look at verses 23 23 and 24, you'll see the prayer that Paul prays for the Thessalonian church. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will 
surely do it. Prayer, we talked about this last week, because of Paul's encouragement, his urging, his admonition, his command to the Thessalonians to pray without ceasing. Prayer is a vital component of the Christian life. And so Paul highlights it here for them, and he prays with them. Paul's prayer requires, this prayer in verses 23 and 24, requires the recognition that it is God and not us who begins the work in us and finishes the work in us. And that's what Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians is about this morning. So three ideas as we consider these remaining verses in 1 Thessalonians. Three ideas for us to consider. First is this, God's good work. Second is God's lasting work. And third is the ground of God's work. God's good work, God's lasting work, and the ground of God's work. So first, God's good work. And throughout this letter, what Paul has given the Thessalonians a good deal of what we'd call doctrinal content. He gives them a bunch of statements about belief. Statements about things that they should, as Christians, believe. Doctrine about the church, how they are to interact with one another and show love to each other. Clarity on how to live lives of purity and holiness. Understanding about Christ's second coming and the hope of the resurrection and how to encourage one another in light of those things. And of course, a reiteration of the gospel and its effects on people. The good news that Jesus came into the world, taking the sins of people upon himself in order that they might spend eternity and be joined with him forever. And Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And this is the same assurance that Paul has for the Thessalonians here at the end of this letter. And this is the content of his prayer. All of the doctrine and the instruction that Paul gives to the Thessalonians in the five chapters, four chapters and change that precede these verses represents God's work in their lives. And Paul prays that it will be sealed, that it will take effect in them. How would, we, how would we talk about the good work of God in the Thessalonians and subsequently in us? What is the good work of God that is being produced in the Thessalonians, as Paul writes to them, and is being produced to those of us who are in Christ? And we see it right at the beginning of verse 23. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify you completely. This is the idea. This is God's good work in the life of the Thessalonians. Sanctification, the word sanctify that you see here, sanctification is the process of being made holy or being set apart. It's the process of, of being taken uh, from a position uh, where you uh, are like the world around you and then are set apart for God's 
purposes. Sanctification, the process of being made holy. And how are Christians set apart by God? Two ways. One, they're declared holy. God says you are holy. For those who trust Christ, who put their faith in Jesus Christ, uh, God declares them holy. He declares them set apart. This is a final statement made about the believer. The believer is holy as God is holy because God says so. Because God makes a declaration of such. But there's another part of this that we need to take into consideration. And this is the part that Paul is talking about here in verse 23. Paul is talking about an ongoing sanctification. The sense of you are declared to be holy by God, but then you are also being made holy by God. This is what Paul is talking about here. And so he's saying, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. God's good work is that, that Paul prays for the Thessalonians here, is that all the right living about which they've just learned, about what he has just written to them throughout this letter, would become increasingly evident in their lives by the grace of God. So as they strive to live in light of the gospel, as they strive to love one another and understand how to interact one another as Christ interacts with us, as they strive to live lives of purity and holiness, as they strive to live in light of Christ's second coming, and as they strive to live faithfully in everyday stuff of life, Paul says, may it become more evident to those around you that you are doing it according to the word of God. And God's good work for us and in us is that we would become more like Jesus. And this is the heart of the sanctification process. That we would mirror, that we would imitate, that we would reflect the person of Jesus Christ who lived a life of perfect submission to the Father and to the Word of God. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so for those who are in Christ, those who are joined to Christ by faith, they are becoming more like Jesus. They are being conformed to the image of Jesus. Along with Jesus, they are being formed to reflect him, to look like him. Like a lump of clay in the hand of the potter, God is forming us, those who are in Christ, to look like Jesus Christ. This is a what we would call a renovation. A full renovation. It's like uh, Chip and Joanna taking dumpy foreclosure houses and turning everything that you'd hoped for in a dream home. But it's more than that. The renovation goes beyond just a, a quick flip of a house. The renovation of Jesus is far greater. It's actually taking you, a person dead in your transgressions and sins, rotting, putrid, walking corpse, and renovating you from that to an indestructible, eternal royalty. 
there's no earthly power that can complete that renovation in you. There's no earthly power that can complete that renovation in you. There's no striving that you can do in your own strength to complete that renovation in you. It is God and God's work alone that brings you and forms you and shapes you into the image of Jesus Christ. And being made more like Jesus is, in fact, miserable. It's living according to the commandments of Scripture. It's living a life of obedience. It's living a life of obedience to God that flows from the heart. And all of this is seen clearly in the person of Jesus Christ. But even when you believe, even when you think, there's no evidence of any of that in me. If you're joined to Christ by faith, if you are in fact in Christ and have believed that He is the one who can give you forgiveness of sins and He's the only one who can provide you with eternal life, if you trust Jesus Christ and you think to yourself, there is nothing good in me, we must begin to trust God's Word and what He's declared to be true about you. That you in fact are that indestructible eternal royalty and not the rotting, putrid, walking corpse. What God has said about you is more important than what you feel to be true about yourself. What God has said about you is more important than what you feel to be true about yourself. We should not at any point begin to ascribe the power to live in imitation of Christ to our own strength. You should not say, there's the picture of Jesus and His character given to me in Scripture. I can match it. You should strive to match it, but it is only by the strength that God provides you that you can and you ever will. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31 says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and here it is, and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts in the Lord. Christ is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. Everything that we need is found in him and him exclusively. None of it, he says, is produced by you. It is all, in fact, produced by him. This is God's good work. It's all purposeful. Lest you believe that you deserve credit for the thing. Lest you think, I've done it. I've made myself more like Jesus. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You must recognize that it is God and His good work in you so that all glory belongs to Him for a life of fruit. This is God's good work in you. The second thing we see here in this text is God's lasting work. God's good work and His lasting work. A life of everyday faithfulness produced by God is lasting. It endures. And we see that here in the second half of verse 23. When Paul writes, And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now this isn't for this moment that Paul writes this, but for the future. 
Paul is looking ahead to the future, and he's praying that it is God who keeps the Thessalonians, and he endures, and he preserves the Thessalonians at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only, so not only is God's good work in you that he produces Christ-likeness in you, but he ensures that that Christ-likeness endures or is preserved until the end, until the last day, and then into eternity. Things change in our lives literally all of the time. Your job may change. Your interests may change. Your friend groups may change. Your location changes. Lots of things change very, very regularly in your life. But God's purposes for you and the direction that He's laid out for you does not change. It does not change. How it works itself out and how it expresses itself when you're a, when you're a young adult or when you're a parent or when you're a grandparent may all look very different to you depending on your season of life. But God's purposes for you do not change. We can actually see that as we look back to the passage we considered last week in verses 16 through 18, when Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. This is what, and then he says this, For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You say, like, what, my job has changed. What, what is God leading me to in this new job that I have? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all things. This is the will of God for you. His purpose for you has not changed. It's just an environmental shift. What's shifted is, is, is the outside criteria, the things that are going on outside of you. Not God's purpose for you in Christ Jesus. For those who are being conformed to the image of Christ, rejoicing and praying and giving thanks will begin to come more and more naturally. You won't always feel like doing those things. And you will certainly grumble, you will fret, and you'll be ungrateful from time to time. But repentance will come more easily and more quickly. And you will long for the renovation to continue. You will long to be continue, continue to be made more into the image of Jesus. And as God continues sanctifying you in an ongoing sense, he has the second coming of Christ in view. God is sealing you. He is protecting you. And he's protecting all of you. All of you. For that day. Paul says all of you will be preserved. Or kept blameless. Like every part of you will be preserved and kept blameless at the coming of Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, in Christ, again, you have been declared blameless. God has set you apart. He has made you holy through the declaration if you've been joined to Christ by faith. You have been washed clean by Jesus' blood. And you are fit for the kingdom. No amount of doing can make you more fit for the kingdom. Because it isn't your doing, but what Christ did on the cross that makes you right before God. 
In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul writes, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God will hold you in this state of blamelessness until the coming of Christ and the threat of sin and death are fully finished. What God brought about in you will not endure because of your efforts. That declaration of holiness will not continue to be the state in which you live because you do a good job. Rather, it will endure because of His faithfulness. Your endurance to the end, blameless and holy and upright, will happen because of God's faithfulness. And this brings us then to a third point this morning. The ground of God's work. What is the foundation for all that Paul says here before in verse 23 and in verse 24? And the foundation comes in verse 24. This is the grounding. How is it that the God of peace will sanctify you completely and in your whole spirit and soul and body keep you blameless till the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? How will he accomplish that or why? And he who calls you is faithful. That is the grounding for what Paul writes in verse 23. Without verse 24, verse 23 is just a roll of the dice. It's just, a, well, maybe this will happen for you. I'm not quite sure. But Paul says with complete assurance and certainty that this will be the case for all who are in Christ because of God's faithfulness. Again, not because of their efforts, not because they do a good job, but because God is faithful. Paul prays and speaks with such certainty about the Thessalonians. How can we have the same assurance in ourselves? How can we know the same thing to be true about who we are? It's because Paul knew. And we can know as well what it is that holds believers fast. As we become more like Jesus, and as we endure, kept blameless in anticipation of the coming of Christ, what holds us in that state? Is it our obedience to God's commands? Is it our good works shown to one another? Is it our love for brothers and sisters? Decidedly, no. What holds us in a state of blamelessness and the state of becoming more like Jesus is the faithfulness of God. He who calls you is faithful. Your hope for the future and for a life of everyday faithfulness is always and only the faithfulness of God. He begins the work and he completes the work. And every work that he begins, he completes. He doesn't start a project and say, eh, I'm going to let that one go. How many projects I've started this last year that are like, eh, I'm going to let that one go. Every work that he begins, he completes. He makes no accounting errors. The decimal points are always in the right place. He doesn't lose inventory. He doesn't misplace anything. He doesn't forget about or move on from tasks halfway completed. 
He who begins a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verses 39 through 40, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Friends, you you may be here this morning thinking, I'm the exception, God has forgotten me. But what is true about you is not what you feel, but what God has said. What God has declared to be true about you is more important than what you feel like is true about you. This must be your posture. God is faithful. God cannot deny himself to start something and not finish it. To have something in his hand and to lose it. To forget about something or to make an error in your life or mine would mean that God is not faithful. He who calls you is faithful. You either have to believe this or discard all of it. And if God is shown even in one instance to be unfaithful, then that makes him a liar. And if he is in fact a liar, then there is no hope for any one of us. Again, it is just a roll of the dice. What happens to you today and in eternity would be completely unpredictable. God would be completely out of control. If God was to show to be if God was shown to be unfaithful in even in one instance, you should live in complete fear. Because your future would be totally and irrevocably uncertain. But friends, the good news is that God is faithful. So everything that he has said is true. Every promise that he's made will be kept. Because of his faithfulness. If the question comes to you, why will you spend eternity with your Father in heaven? The answer is not because I lived a life of obedience and I did the right thing. Or I did good things and I usually loved other people well. Rather, the answer to the question, why will you spend eternity with your Father in heaven, is because God has promised those who are joined to Christ by faith will become the inheritors of eternal life. God is faithful. Now that might be a mouthful to that question, but you get the idea. God is faithful. It is His faithfulness. And because I am joined to Christ, because I have trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins and have stopped trying to justify myself and my behavior, but I have fully repented, admitting to be a sinner, needing salvation. Because God is faithful, you're not You're not saved because of that profession. You're saved because of the faithfulness of God. 
God's faithfulness is the ground of His good and lasting work in us. I want to give you three things in conclusion and then we're going to approach the Lord's table this morning. The first is this. A life of everyday faithfulness is only possible because of God's faithfulness. A life of everyday faithfulness is only possible because of God's faithfulness. And so much of what Paul writes, and we started our time together in the short letter, by talking about everyday faithfulness is one of the primary themes of this letter. Loving one another within the local church, receiving the word, not as the word of man, but as the word of God, living in hopeful anticipation of Christ's return, encouraging one another, living a life of purity and holiness, living a life that is hardworking in the small and seemingly forgotten stuff of life. This is everyday faithfulness. But Paul doesn't want the Thessalonians to do these things to prove that they're faithful. He doesn't want everyone to look at them and say, wow, look at those faithful people. What he wants is for them to live a life of everyday faithfulness to reflect their faithful God in order that he would be glorified through their living. He knows that living according to God's word in everyday faithfulness is only possible because God holds them and is sanctifying them. God is faithful. And so we can live faithfully giving glory to him alone. A life of everyday faithfulness is possible because of God's faithfulness. Second, in Christ, God is doing a work in you. Brothers and sisters, God is in fact renovating you. He is taking you and shaping you into the image of Jesus Christ. He is moving you more towards His Son, Jesus. A life that puts off sin and that is submitted to God, but not because of your hard work in following Him, although it is a difficult path to do, to take, but because of His faithfulness towards you, God is doing a work in you. He is doing a work in you and continues to do a work in you because he cannot deny himself. Because he is faithful. Your beginning in the Christian life, and maybe you're early in your Christian life, if you're young or if you've recently come to faith in Jesus Christ, is or was small. It was a small thing. But God calls a little tree a plant because it is growing up to be so. If you feel as though your Christian life is no different than it was a year ago or two years ago or five years ago, don't despair. Christ deals gently and decidedly in patience with sinners. He can be approached. He loves you. And God, according to His faithfulness, promises to bring about Christ-likeness in you. In His timing, not in your timing. God promises to sanctify you. Oaks of righteousness are produced because a faithful God places His favor on His planting. Every oak tree that you see wasn't, didn't grow to that stature overnight. It's many, many years of God's consistent, ongoing, committed, decided work 
in your life. God is doing a work in you for those who are in Christ. And then, in Christ, God has done a work in you. For you who come to Christ by faith, for the forgiveness of sins, God has declared you blameless. Not because you are blameless or because you are without sin, but because when he looks upon you, he sees Jesus Christ and you are joined to him. And he, through his sacrificial death, has made you right with God. Nothing more is needed to preserve you. Nothing more is needed to preserve you. You have everything that you need in Christ. Many Christians again live in fear, believing that their actions can disrupt God's grace in their lives. But if you are genuinely in Christ, nothing can change your status. If you are in Christ, you will long for his restorative work and you will believe that God's ways are better than yours. And as, a, as this life continues, you will sometimes forget that God's ways are better than yours. In fact, for many of us in this room, we've forgotten even this morning that God's ways are better than ours. But in those moments when you're led to feel internally despair, remember, Christ deals gently, decidedly, patiently with us as we slip back into old ways of thinking and old ways of life. In those moments, you should not act as though God has given up his work in you. Rather, believe that Jesus cares tenderly for sheep as they wander off and bruised reeds and patiently and decidedly come after them to bring them home. Return to your heavenly father, like the prodigal son, return to your heavenly father. His arms are open wide for those who repent of their faithlessness and trust that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God has done a work in you. And in Christ, God has, you, has made you blameless before him. Because of Christ's work in you, that we celebrate now at the Lord's table. So as we consider what we've just talked about this morning, there should be in us great celebration and great understanding that God has done everything that we need and that it is seen most clearly in the cross of Christ. The broken body that is before us this morning in the form of bread and the shed blood that cleanses us of our sin in the form of juice. We participate together, recognizing fully, not that we are in need of further cleansing, but that we have been fully cleansed. Not that we are in need of more righteousness or more right living, but that all of Christ's right living has been granted to us. And we come here now full well knowing that everything that we need is found in Christ and in him alone. The Apostle Paul, in the letter 
to the Corinthians writes this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we're going to proclaim the death that made us right with God and celebrate the, uh, the future realization that we will, in fact, one day sit around a table and feast and be fully satisfied with Christ and him alone. We look forward to the day, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where everything will be spread out in front of us, where there will be no more fear, where there will be no more doubt in our minds or in our hearts, in our fickle and feeble minds, where we tend to go and wonder, is God for me? There will be no doubt in that moment that God is, in fact, for us. So, as you approach the table, do so in celebration. Do so anticipating the future and what God has done for you and declared to be true of you even now. If you're visiting with us this morning, this is something that we do together monthly as a congregation. <clears throat> we approach the table, but this is for believers only. If you're wondering, I don't know where I stand before God. I'm not sure what I think about Jesus Christ. I'm not sure what I believe to be true about many things that have been said this morning. <clears throat> I would encourage you, don't approach the table. No one's watching you. No one is, no one's judging you. Uh, but use this as an opportunity to reflect on the goodness of Jesus Christ as been, has been communicated this morning. And if you're in that position this morning where you're not sure that you stand, where you stand with God, come talk to me after the service. I would love to, to speak with you about the good news of, of Jesus Christ. But if you are in Christ, then by all means, feel free to come down to the front to take the bread and take the juice and then make your way back to your seat. And when you're prepared in your heart, to receive the elements in a spirit of celebration, please, please do so. The worship team is going to come up. There are many kids in here as well. And as, as, you, are, <clears throat> as you are navigating the table this morning, uh, and your kid, uh, kids have not yet made a credible profession of faith, if you don't know where your child stands, is what I'm saying, then you should invite them just to observe. Part participate by, by watching. And then use this as an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them about his perfect life, his death, his burial, his resurrection that has made you right with God. I'm going to pray. When you're prepared in your heart, head down to the front and receive the elements. Take them back to your seat and participate when you're ready. God, we thank you this morning for Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that in him we have all everything that we need. Would you now in these moments cause us to uh, see clearly that it is your good work in us that we need to have produced? That is not striving in our own strength that holds us fast, but it is in your faithfulness and your goodness displayed to us in Jesus. God, would your faithfulness uh, grant us faithfulness in our lives? 
as we continue to encourage one another, and as we look forward to the day of Christ's return. God, create in us a clean heart. As you have declared us blameless, strengthen us to walk in blamelessness. As you have declared us to be righteous, strengthen us to walk in righteousness. As you have declared us to be holy, strengthen us to walk in holiness. Would we be revived by the elements before us? Would you knit us together in unity? Would our hearts love you more and we'd be inclined to you and to follow you in every day life? God, we thank you for these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.